Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear Pashman. President Joe Biden is in the Middle East this week, making his first stop in Israel as president and a bit of a surprise stop in Saudi Arabia. A surprise because it's not exactly in line with his original political posture regarding the kingdom, with which he pledged to keep a less friendly relationship after the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, an American resident. Here to discuss why President Biden's posture has changed is retired U.S. Ambassador Mark Sievers, director of AJC Abu Dhabi, the Sydney Learner Center for Arab-Jewish Understanding. Mark, welcome back to People of the Pod. Hi, Manya. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, the last time you joined us, it was to discuss then-Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's visit to your neck of the woods, the United Arab Emirates, and what that meant. Now we have another newsworthy itinerary to discuss. Um, But first, I want to play a clip of Israeli ambassador to the UN, Gilad Erdan, at this year's AJC Global Forum, talking about next steps to expand the Abraham Accords. To conclude with uh, congratulating President Biden for his upcoming trip to Israel and praying and wishing that uh, his stop in Saudi Arabia would help to expand the new circle of peace. If Saudi Arabia joins the uh, accords uh, with its uh, unique status of the, you know, the protector of the holiest sites in Islam, that is going to, uh, it's sure going to cause uh, a domino uh, effect on our region. Mark, what is the potential impact of President Biden's visit to Saudi Arabia? Does it indeed offer an opportunity to expand the circle of peace? Potentially, yes. Let me talk about this whole trip with both its parts, the Israel-West Bank part and then the Saudi Arabia part, because I think they are parts of a whole. This trip has been being planned for quite some time now. It was originally supposed to take place in June, and then it was postponed, I think partly because they were still working on some of the issues behind the scenes and making sure that there was a common understanding of what would happen during the trip. But also, I think they wanted to time it to coincide with the summit of the Gulf Cooperation Council countries, uh, the six Arab Gulf countries that are aligned, have been since, I believe, the early 1980s in this so-called GCC, which includes from north to south, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and Oman. That's an annual event that American presidents have attended for some time now. President Obama attended at least two such summits. President Trump did the same. And then partly because of the pandemic, there's been a gap, but now uh, President Biden will join the summit that's coming up later this week. Do we know what is on the agenda of the Gulf Cooperation Council summit? Actually, I don't. They do these annually. And this one is a plus three. So they've invited, I assume, the presidents or or prime ministers of Egypt, Jordan, the king in the case of Jordan, although I don't know if the king is going himself, and Iraq. So I think it is part of an ongoing effort by the Gulf states to shore up 
kind of a moderate Arab center, uh, to which I would say Morocco is also a, a party, but Morocco geographically is, is far away uh, on the opposite end of the Arab world and so doesn't normally uh, participate in these events. The conflict in Yemen is probably on uh, uh, the agenda. I, I would imagine they're focused on things like the impact of the war in Ukraine on grain imports, which are extremely important, particularly, I think, for Egypt, but, but for everybody. And uh, I would assume also the relationship with the United States, which has undergone some strains, uh, as you alluded to at, at the top particularly with Saudi Arabia, but not exclusively with Saudi Arabia. And Iran is always there. I would say it's a mistake to think that all the Gulf states view Iran the same way they don't. They each one have their kind of nuanced differences about how threatening they feel Iran is. Some of them, the Bahrain in particular, feel very directly threatened by Iran. Others uh, want to uh, maintain a dialogue. That's the Omani position. The Qataris are, are somewhere in there. Um, and then the UAE, which is uh, very concerned about Iran, but doesn't uh, think that confrontation is necessarily the way to, to deal with it. So there's quite a mix there and, and uh, a lot for them to talk about, and particularly uh, if the Iraqis are in the room where Iran has tremendous influence internally. Some have suggested that President Biden is going to the Middle East to prevent China and Russia from playing a more significant role there. Will that come up at the GCC meeting? And is there any credence to that theory? Well, it's certainly in the background from Washington's perspective. And I think one of the things that has moved the president and and his senior advisors to uh, adjust the position that he took during the campaign and in the uh, the first year or so of, of his administration, that the Middle East is important, and it's certainly important as a, uh, the Gulf as a source of, of energy supplies, um, but also strategically, these countries, the Gulf in particular, have relied on an American security blanket going back to the Carter Doctrine of, of 1978, um, which has grown quite considerably for a number of years through the Iraq war and and the war in Afghanistan, and then has gradually been turning, you know, uh, diminishing. But the question of how far it's going to diminish is is very much on the minds of, of the Gulf leaders. Is the United States still a reliable security partner? Uh, I would argue yes, but uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan in particular and some other issues involving Yemen and so forth have raised some questions. Uh, and I think that on the U.S. side, they looked at this and saw that uh, Russian and, and uh, Chinese influence was growing uh, due to a perception of an American withdrawal. And again, I think the actual reality of the American presence is, is quite different from the perception, but perceptions count. Um, so Russia and China are very much in the background, whether it's something that could be discussed openly in this kind of a format, maybe not. Um, but perhaps in the in I assume the president will have a series of one-on-one meetings, as well as attend some kind of plenary in the one-on-ones. And in some of them, uh, yes, I, I think that uh, is quite likely. 
You've mentioned Yemen a couple of times. Is it possible that President Biden's visit to Saudi Arabia is really intended to, in part, cement that ceasefire in Yemen in hopes that it will hold? Well, um, it, it's, a, it's a topic I'm sure will be on the agenda. I'm not sure that a presidential visit is necessary to cement the ceasefire at this point. It's being actively worked by two very uh, uh, important special representatives, one the State Department special representative, Tim Lenderking, and also the UN Secretary General's special representative, who have been actively working with the Saudis and with the Houthi movement in, in Yemen to extend the ceasefire really since uh, the beginning of Ramadan several months ago. So that already seems to be fairly successful. It is important to keep it going. Uh, and there are other aspects of it, prisoner exchanges and reducing pressure on certain besieged cities uh, within Yemen. But ending the Yemen war was a high priority for the Biden administration at the beginning uh, when he first came into office. Uh, that's one area where I think they can say they've, they've been quite successful, at least so far. We hope it holds. So I'm also curious if the visit, if Biden's visit to Riyadh has as much or more significance for Israel as his visit to Israel. <laughs> I would say that uh, it's very important to the Israelis, the possibility of, you know, expanding the Abraham Accords. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. I don't think that's going to happen suddenly. Yet there is a, a growing range of areas in which there is some element of cooperation or dialogue between Israel and, and Saudi Arabia. That's not entirely new, but it certainly has accelerated, uh, I would say, even over the last uh, six to eight months, including visits uh, by Israeli business people, discussions of uh, some forms of defense cooperation. One of the most significant things the United States did uh, in the last two years, uh, and actually under the Trump administration, was moving the Israel's membership in a U.S.-designated military command from Europe to the Central Command uh, that covers the Middle East. And the practical result of that is that senior Israeli military officers uh, are engaged in direct discussions with their Gulf Arab uh, and other Arab counterparts in the presence of the U.S. military commanders for the Middle East. That's been a tremendously important step toward increasing the security of the region and also just for these senior officers to get to know each other. Uh, so I think that's also worth mentioning quite significant. So while Biden is on the ground there, um, virtual diplomacy will also be taking place. The I, I2U2 virtual summit and no listeners, we are not talking about Bono and his band U2 or R2-D2. Uh, we are talking about a relatively new alliance among India, Israel, the United States, and the UAE. This will actually take place during the visit to Israel. It will be uh, you know, a virtual meeting, whatever platform they use, I don't know. But we'll bring in uh, the Prime Minister of India and the President of the United Arab Emirates, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, along with um, Prime Minister um, Lapid and President Biden. 
And it's the first time, uh, I believe, there have been meetings at the foreign minister level, but this is the first such uh, summit of these four countries. They've been very clear that this is not a security alliance. This is much more about bringing um, India and thereby South Asia into uh, a commercial and investment uh, block that links up with the alliance, the new economic alliance between Israel and the United Arab Emirates under, uh, you know, with the full backing of the United States. So it's quite significant and very, very interesting and adds a whole different uh, kind of geopolitical cast to the visit. So uh, I think we should all welcome that. Now, Mark, you said earlier that those who say the prospect of expanding the Abraham Accords could be an outcome of this trip, they might be getting a little ahead of themselves. I want to play another clip from the Global Forum panel on expanding the Abraham Accords, this time from UAE ambassador to the UN, Lana Nuseba. Ultimately, the Abraham Accords is not just a peace agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. I think it's also a step change in the relationship globally between Islam and the Jewish faith. Now, that seems quite lofty as well. (laughs) And I'm curious what kind of interfaith impact this trip, this this visit, this diplomacy uh, in the Middle East by President Biden, what impact could it have in, in that realm? Well, we don't know yet. We have to see how it goes. But again, potentially, it's quite considerable. Look, I want to give the United Arab Emirates, the Emirati leadership, great credit for the role that they they are playing in promoting this dialogue between uh, Islam and and Judaism and for their uh, welcoming of a... um, very active and growing Jewish community uh, in their country, uh, which has really taken off in in the last few years, and I've witnessed it, I am witness to it myself. Uh, It's something quite exciting. Saudi Arabia, when you put it in there, adds a whole additional dimension. And I think it's very true that uh, the Saudis, the leadership of Saudi Arabia, maybe not all of the Saudi people, but the leadership of Saudi Arabia uh, is taking a look at what's happening with the Abraham Accords, with uh, the UAE and Bahrain, uh, welcoming Jewish life and and thinking, you know, there, maybe there's, there's something there for us as well. The Saudi-based Muslim World League has been very active in promoting dialogue between Jewish representatives and representatives of of Islam and AJC's own Rabbi David Rosen based in Jerusalem uh, is our representative to those uh, discussions. But it's something that is is really quite exciting to see. And it's it's a huge change in Saudi attitudes on Jews and Judaism that goes well beyond Uh, relations between uh, Arabs and Israelis. So, yes, that really is significant. In fact, Dr. Elisa, the secretary general of the Muslim World League, gave the sermon at the Hajj pilgrimage hosted in Saudi Arabia just this past week. Good point. I noticed that, too. And um, that is quite significant because he would not have been asked to do that Uh, without the blessing of the top leadership in in Saudi Arabia. And that means that that he has the backing of, uh, I assume, the king and the crown prince. 
and other members of the royal family to continue with this effort to engage uh, Jews and to promote this idea of, of Muslim-Jewish dialogue, which I think is a wonderful thing. Uh, I've been working on this in my own way for many, many years as a diplomat, and it's just very exciting to see it uh, developing this way. Are there other places in the Middle East region that we should be we should have our eye on uh, where some of these relationships are starting to form? These bonds that you've been working on for so many years are really starting to bear fruit. Well, I don't want to leave Morocco out of this picture. I I mentioned them earlier as part of this big Arab center, uh, moderate center that the Gulf Council is trying to, to promote. And in Morocco, you know, the. The ties between uh, the royal palace, the king, and the Jewish community has always been quite strong, even when the majority of uh, Moroccan Jews left Morocco, either for France or for for Israel, in the, um, I guess, the late 1950s, early 1960s. Those ties still continued, and there is still a vibrant and active Jewish community in Morocco. But beyond that, uh, with the Abraham Accords, we've seen uh, there, you know, there's been Israeli tourism to Morocco for for decades. It's not new, Um, but certainly now that uh, they can travel uh, very easily on on Israeli passports, I think there are now direct flights to to Casablanca. There's been uh, uh, just a great excitement on the part of many, many Israelis of of North African, uh, not just Moroccan, but also Algerian, Tunisian uh, origin, and this opportunity to rediscover Morocco. And I think, you know, in in Morocco, there's also a great deal of interest in in, uh, what Israel can bring uh, to the table in terms of new technologies and, uh, you know, better use of, of water and agricultural techniques. So that's part of this picture, too. So I I would be, even though they're not on the agenda for the president's trip, I'd be remiss not to not to mention it. So Morocco, Bahrain, UAE. Are we still counting Sudan as part of the Abraham Accords? I don't. uh, I think some do. Um, I don't they they didn't renounce it. But Sudan has gone through a period is still going through a period of of internal turmoil that has made it difficult to uh, to actually move forward with the accords. So I think they're still sort of out there as a once things settle down, uh, let's see where they are. And I think there is potential there, but I wouldn't formally consider them, in my opinion, others may disagree, as part of the accords because they couldn't, they weren't in a position to actually conclude, you know, a peace treaty or um, uh, an establishment of, of full diplomatic relations. So come September 15th, we will be celebrating the second anniversary of the Abraham Accords uh, among Morocco, Bahrain, Israel, and some say Sudan. Uh, How is AJC marking this historic step? So we have a a mission coming, um, a large delegation of uh, AJC lay leaders from across the United States, led by David Harris and, and some of our senior staff. And they're coming to, uh, to Dubai and then to uh, Abu Dhabi. It should be a great program. I, as I said I, earlier to you, I, I would, just came away from a, a planning call 
uh, about this, and the, the planning is, is obviously quite advanced at this point. So we're very excited to see this happening. Mark, thank you so much once again for joining us and sharing your expertise on the ground there. And we hope to see you again soon. Thanks very much, Manya. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to listen to my conversation with Fernando Lautenberg, the first commissioner to monitor and combat anti-Semitism for the Organization of American States, and Dina Siegel-Van, director of AJC's Arthur and Rochelle Belfer Institute for Latino and Latin American Affairs. We talked about the steps taken to fight anti-Semitism since Iranian-backed terrorists carried out the deadliest anti-Semitic attack since the Holocaust 28 years ago on July 18th. We remember the 85 lives lost in the attack on the Amia Jewish Community Center in Buenos Aires. May their memories be a blessing. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.